Hello and welcome back to Podcasts from the Edge with me, Peter Bruce. This is where I try to find out things I really know nothing about. It's outside my comfort zone and yours too, I hope. Remember that Podcasts from the Edge is available in the Financial Mail online and on the Apple and Spotify podcast platforms. As we get further into our energy conversation in South Africa, what with ESCOM being unreliable and coal heading for euthanasia, there's much excitement about renewable energy, wind power and solar. There's lots of wind and lots of sunshine here in SA, so you'd think that would be it, but no. First, wind and solar are great, it seems, while the sun's shining and the wind's blowing, but there's no storage, people say. Second, there's the great and fairly new gas debate. Because coal creates so many jobs, probably no more than around 100,000 direct jobs, the politics require that we look after the jobs while we move from coal to renewables. In the long interim, Energy Minister Greta Mantasha and a big chunk of business are pushing for gas. And that would mean that between now and 2050, by the time we are supposed to be carbon net zero, we have to build a national gas infrastructure network and then, presumably, a solar and wind one too after that. It sounds complicated and expensive. Fortunately, I have as a guest today Jesse Burton, an energy policy advisor, senior researcher at the University of Cape Town. And Jesse, thank you so much for your time. But does it really make sense to build a whole new transitional infrastructure for gas um, starting sort of now or starting to think about it now? This could take more than a decade. Hi, Peter. Thanks so much for having me today. Um, I think that's a really good way to ask the question. And I think there's a simple answer and there's a complicated answer. And I think we'll have a long discussion about the complicated elements of it. The simple answer is no, it doesn't really make sense to do that. Um, we want to absolutely minimize these investments that could become what are called stranded assets. A stranded asset just means it's an asset that you don't utilize fully, and so you don't make your money back on it. Um, and we want to minimize the risks of stranded assets. We want to minimize the risk of wasting very scarce capital in investing in the wrong thing. Um, and that's the easy part of the answer. The complicated part of that answer is, when we look at the technical, economic, political, and social factors, what exactly is that level of, of small infrastructure investment and what are the implications for the South African economy? And so, and so assuming that, that it was interesting, so we have as a, as a base plan, as you well know, um, something called the IRP, right? It's the Integrated Resource Plan. 2019, it sort of set out a path from here to 2050, how much coal power we'd have to decommission, how much wind and solar we would buy. But it was interesting with gas because they write in um, that uh, we would be looking to install around about 3,000 megawatts of new gas power during this long period. And that mainly um, it would be uh, to convert these closed or open cycle gas turbines that we so depend, diesel turbines, I mean, that we so depend on now to top up ESCOM when it's failing, um, and that those would be converted to gas, and that's where the gas would be used. I don't know if I've got that right. But um, what appears to be happening now is a push partly from the government via Greta Mantasha, but also in, the, in a big new report from the National Business Initiative, to which a lot of very powerful CEOs have put their names. There's a there's a push now for a much bigger role for gas in the transition between now and 2050. 
What has happened? So, so I think a good place to start is to understand how models like the model used in the IRP actually work. Um, we, we're very lucky in South Africa, we've actually got several groups who do that kind of modeling. And so unlike in some other countries, we can kind of test and assess each other's work as, as, as time goes on. What the IRP aims to do is to balance supply and demand at every moment of the day over many years into the future. So these are very complicated. It was much more complicated when you had to build things like nuclear or coal plants because it took 10 or 15 years to bring that infrastructure online. So really you were kind of guessing in the dark. And we can see that the impacts of those kinds of inflexible infrastructure decisions. You think demand will be X, um, it's actually much lower than X, but you've built these large, chunky plants that come online much, much, many years after you expect them to. And of course, you accumulate a whole lot of debt as that happens. Um, what has happened is that what we now call variable renewable energy, wind and solar, has become much cheaper. You alluded to this earlier. And the IRP acknowledges this. It's, it, most of what gets built over the next decade is, is in the form of, of solar PV and wind. This is for many reasons, not least because they're the cheapest, but also because, of course, we have a huge air pollution challenge in South Africa, and we're one of the most carbon-intensive economies in the world. What is the role of gas in this in this in this electricity system? Is that typically what what you want to be able to do is in some weeks, for example, where you have very bad sun and very low wind, you want to be able to turn something on. And in the past, what you did is you could turn on your your coal plants, for example, but coal plants are very inflexible. They don't like to be turned, you know, turned on, <laughs> turned up and down a lot. Um, it, it, it's very costly. It's very bad for them. So, so increasingly, what is happening is that you want to kind of complement that variable wind and solar with flexible capacity. Now, what we see happening in all of the modeling groups in the country who are looking at this is that the cheapest form of that flexible capacity. First of all, you want to build a lot of batteries. So all of the models agree. We build a lot of batteries, and that's for kind of every day. If the wind drops, the battery comes up in the peak, you know, when demand is very high in the evenings. But what happens is that batteries only run for a certain amount of time. So you have to complement that with something that you can store. Um, in the long run, you know, what that will probably be is what is called green hydrogen, which is hydrogen made from, from renewable energy. Um, but in the interim, there's a lot of debate around how much gas do we need to fill that role. So if we have five days of no wind and sun, what happens? Now, because gas turbines are very cheap to build, but very expensive to run, what these kinds of models like to do and, and power systems want to do is build a lot of them and run them very little. Um, and this is where there starts to be disagreement between all of the experts. How much do they need to run? Um, because that impacts a lot. What is that supporting infrastructure that you need to build? Do we need to build new um, import terminals, for example, or can we use the existing pipeline that we have into Mozambique that supplies gas to us? Just, it was interesting that the, that the NBI report settles on um, a solution. It goes through a lot of possibilities as you're talking about the pipeline from Mozambique or do we build terminals? And it seems to, to settle, Jesse, on a solution which basically consists of building, I presume, terminals in, in Kucha, Richards Bay and Soldana and possibly what the, in Motala, which I think is in Mozambique, um, and that these would be fed by... Um, Basically, um, 
what they call floating storage regasification unit, which is a ship, basically. It's got a big bulbous tanks on it. Um, and they would they would ship liquid natural gas, presumably from Mozambique, to these places, and they would be then fed into an infrastructure of some kind. And I guess the question if, um, that I can't find an answer to in here is what that infrastructure looked like. Is it from port to the to the existing or the converted uh, peaking power plant? Um, or is it wider than that? What is your understanding? How big is the NBR solution? So what the NBR have done, which is really great, is they've looked at four different scenarios. They've said, what if we have more supply of gas? What if we don't have more supply of gas? And what if our demand is very high? And what if our demand is very low? Um, and then they then they look at all those nodes, as you say. Do we have Kuka and Saldana and Richards Bay and Matola? Matola's um, yes, in Mozambique. Um, and how do we kind of balance the the costs of the big users? So so power is a big user in the in the modeling, um, as is Sassel Sinfuels, the conversion of of the Sinfuels from coal to liquids to gas to liquids. And then there's some industry yeah. and there's some transport. Um, the big ones are power and and Sinfuels though. Now, now, what, what I, what, what, what they, what happens in the report is, and, and I just want to flag that this com competing analysis is quite closely aligned with their low demand scenario. And their low demand scenario um, basically shows that there's very limited increase in demand for gas this decade. By around 2030, yes. it's just yes. over the pipeline capacity from Mozambique, what we call the Romco pipeline, um, and. So, so based on that, based on the fact that this is kind of where I see a lot of agreement between different groups, of course, it's very dependent on, on what your assumptions are about the power sector and GDP growth and all of that. But, but there is some agreement that that's kind of the world we're looking at. Um, now, the solution that the NBI comes up with is that for negotiating reasons, we should have multiple landing points, those FSRUs in different places, because it would give South Africa strategic advantage in the, in the price negotiations. Um, I disagree with that. I think we're going to, it's such a small amount of gas um, that it would, you know, we're not going to have a huge amount of cost associated right. Um, with only having one of those little bits of infrastructure built. Okay. Um, and it's very cheap to build the, some of those, those midstream assets. So they assess this, they look at, yeah. you know, building the link um, from a taller to the existing pipeline, for example, using the gas we can from Mozambique that already exists. And then they look at the, at the three different places. Um, but what they've analyzed is lumping them together. There isn't one yes. that says, okay, let's just look at Matola and Richards Bay, for example. The other part of this is, of course, the politics and the commercial realities. Um, you know, the mod, all of the modeling is saying, look, we need to maybe build these OCGTs because they're flexible, dispatchable capacity, and they can be used to supplement the rest of the power system if needed. But the reality is that what is being developed in the in the market is very many gigawatts. Gigawatt is just a measure of how big a power plant is. 25 gigawatts of, of plants are being developed and a lot of them are being planned to use far more gas. So not being used at very low levels, below 10% per annum, you know, much higher, 50, 60, what is called baseload gas. And that's very expensive. Do you see 25 gigawatts in this country? Yes, that's what, the, that, those are the projects that are actually looking for environmental authorization at the moment. Are these private companies trying to build this, this power? Yeah, some are private. Uh, 
Ofcom as well is developing three gigawatts at Richards Bay. Um, and then, and, and a kind of a variety of private companies. And is this in response to the, to the, um, to the liberalization of embedded power or is it, or is it, um, is this, are these older plants? I think it's in large part, it's a response to the, the three gigawatts that's in the IRP. So it's, it's plants that are planning to bid in, I assume. And, um, but of course, what, what that the terms of that look like matters a lot because if you're developing a what's called a CCGT and you're planning to run it at 60 or 70%, that's a very different proposition to building a flexible OCGT that's going to run at below 10%. And the money is made on gas. The money is not made on building this infrastructure. So there's an incentive to try and kind of inflate, inflate that in the real world. Um, so the modelers all agree with each other that what we need is some of this capacity to be built and for it to be run very little. But in the real world, that's not what is being planned. Um, and there's a, I think there's a, that's kind of where a lot of the stranded asset risk comes in. And so let me just ask you then. So because it it sounds so, um, it sounds like so such a big risk. Um, we 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 uh, we land gas in Richards Bay, Kucha, and Saldana, and these things feed um, existing open cycle gas turbines. And in uh, Saldana, Ankerlich, um, uh, Dedisa, I think at Kucha, um, uh, the the do we need new gas turbines, or do we just simply re? rebuild the ones that we have to use gas instead of diesel so so it's much cheaper to use gas in those existing ocgts um in fact yeah. one has already been converted i believe from the nbr report um because oh. it's cheaper and there's lower carbon emissions associated with burning the gas rather than diesel mm. i think if that can happen in a very light touch way that's not a huge amount of risk um, but what is being proposed is, you know, repurposing ESCOM coal plants as gas plants, um, <laughs> you know, whole is that, uh, kind oh of inland, inland demand system. And who's proposing that? Um, well, I've, I've, the minister said he's expecting an application from ESCOM any day now. Um, but this is also what is okay. modeled in some of the NBI scenarios. So the reason for their different yeah. demand scenarios depends very much also on what they've assumed about 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 that process. Yes. Um, and so that to me so look, wouldn't necessarily make sense. Um, or it could make yeah. sense, but we need a lot more analysis first. Um, yeah. In the in the NBI report, they say in both scenarios, low demand that you were talking about just now and high demand, um, uh, new gas infrastructure is going to be necessary. That it would need a decision would need to be made soon, like by next year. Um, but the infrastructure itself would be required by 2030, 2035. And as you say, that's a big jump. Even if it's you know, even as even if it's relatively modest infrastructure it's still a lot to spend on something that we may not end up using you've talked about batteries where are we now with batteries and where will we be in 2030 in terms of technology i mean how capable how much more capable will batteries be so there's lots and lots in fact i don't even track all the different kinds of battery names because they are so complicated yeah. Um, that are under development. This is a hugely 
active space of research. Um, of course, everyone hears about the energy transition all the time, but you know, there's all the way from kind of blue skies to commercial development is is happening. We're kind of lagging a little bit. You know, there, there's a um, a proposal for I can't remember the size. I think 500 megawatts of of batteries. It's in the IRP. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and I think we should be moving on that. We need more of this peaking capacity in the system anyway. In the same way that we should be moving a little bit faster, I think, or at least trying to keep up with the IRP on the on the wind and solar, because a lot of what we're ha happening in the system right now with the load shedding is because we're not able to um, top up the pump storage, for example. We're running out of that. That and we're not able to because we're not we're not able to legally or take or, or technically. No, technically, because we don't have enough generation. So, you know, you'll see sometimes right. ESCOM will go up a stage because the pump storage is, yes. they, have, they can't move the, right. the top dam. So any energy no. we can get onto the system very quickly, I think, will be very valuable in the short term. Um, over the next decade, of course, what we see is if we stick to the IRP, there's this huge build out of wind and solar. And there's some yeah. capacity in the IRP like new coal, which I think is very unlikely to be built. Um, but the advantages that from when the IRP was done to now, we've seen demand um, and GDP growth is much, much lower. So so there's not so much yes. risk um, if we don't build some of, some yeah. of that capacity. So this is yeah. a huge question. And of course, there's all sorts of other opportunities that are also quite nascent in terms of long duration storage, um, thermal storage. You know, you can, but like the CSP plants, that's being trialed in some coal plants in other parts of the world. Um, you use the molten salts to... As, as the storage yeah. um, and you actually can reuse some of your coal plant infrastructure um, you can you know there's kind of different different opportunities and, yes. and for me kind of minimizing that risk I think is really important and the MPR report does do this you know they assess what is the cost of the, the capital we might not be able to pay back etc cetera, etc cetera. but what they yes. don't explore is a scenario where they they don't have multiple FSIUs, for example. So they don't just say, well, let's yes. just use Matola and a little bit of Richards Bay, for example, or just Matola and a little bit of Soldana. They always have the, yeah. the multiple nodes being developed, which they explain is for strategic reasons. And I think that might be, you know, we probably could go a step further and, and, and really delve down into a minimal build plan. So, if you when you speak to you know sort of grown ups in the area like the minister and CEOs and all of that, they would regard what I'm thinking and possibly what you think as being dangerous and reckless. Um, that you can't take risks with the economy, that you need to be prepared for all eventualities, and that it's perfectly reasonable to um, you know one you know use the coal that we've got. Uh, back it up with gas and yes wouldn't it be lovely you know eventually to have a lot of solar and wind and batteries but that's for the future and not for not for now how do i find it very difficult to argue back because i'm not expert enough and i don't know enough but it when i when when i'm spoken to it's almost patronizing but but um you know they sound as if they have a point um they're the people taking the risk it's their money of course, and because and we've had fifteen years of load shedding and load shedding in the eighties and load shedding in the fifties, and so this fear I think is it's very strong in the hearts yeah. of of, yeah. of the political leadership, especially in the energy sector. But for all that worry, they haven't actually bought any new capacity online. Yeah. My response yeah. to that is two: the fastest things to get on the system are wind and solar, um, and yeah. they're very cheap now. I mean, they're a bit more expensive Which, because modules yeah. are taking up, but but 
that. The second part of it is that um, open cycle gas turbines are also relatively quick to build. You know, this isn't a, a nuclear plant. This isn't a 15 or 18 no. year runway. So, so I think we can afford to kind of just, you know, step back a little bit, um, take a considered approach to the whole thing and use the existing pipeline because we're not using it at its full capacity at the moment. Um, oh, really? The Bronco pipeline, it's got a capacity of, I don't know, 210 petajoules. That's also just an, an energy measurement. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot. <laughs> We're only using 180. So there's a little bit of increase there. The problem is that yeah. the, those fields are, are starting to decline. And this is where Matola comes in. So can you bring gas in, do the LNG at Matola where they're already developing infrastructure and use it? The other part of this, of course, we could buy power from Mozambique. <laughs> well, absolutely, but is it reliable? This is, you know, there is there are separatists in in and and in you know in, in insurgencies in northern Mozambique. Sounds like a very dangerous place to rely on for your, you know, for your economic future. Of course, I mean the one advantage of LNG, of course, is that you don't it doesn't have to come from a particular place. So once you have an FSRU, that gas can really come from anywhere. Yeah. You know, the LNG terminal in Matola, they can you can buy it from somewhere else if you need to. So it does give yeah. you a little bit of that flexibility. Are uh, gas prices are gas prices very sensitive to political events? Uh, Ukraine at the moment is obviously, or Russia particularly, is a big gas supplier. What happens? What happens to gas prices? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think this is partly the reason I would also take my foot off the accelerator a little bit. It would be to see what happens in the coming years. Uh, Russia is a huge oil, especially on coal and a lesser gas and a big supplier into Europe. So as Europe maybe swivels to try and purchase from elsewhere, that could have all sorts of other ramifications. But gas prices are also very variable. So a few years ago, they were at kind of historic lows and then they were at historic highs and um that that does create some some risk, although I would assume that a sensible commercial approach would be to lock in long term contracts. For the country, the important yeah. thing there is to lock in very flexible contracts. So even if you take a little bit of a hit on a high price, it's to not have locked yourself into buying the gas for a baseload gas plant because that's not what we're going to need that's much more expensive what you want is little bits of gas filling in rather than a big gas plant running all the time because that will have huge implications for the for power sector costs for example yes jesse just explain something to me so um you made the point just now about pumping water um so escom having to go up a stage because it needs to pump water because it needs that 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 hydropower is it used in as a as peak power or is it used as storage what's the what's the what was the original thinking behind having these this facility there's one in, big one in KwaZulu, one in Cape Town what was the original thought? What was it there for? So pump storage is a is it's exactly this. I mean it gives you the opportunity to it's storage. it's storage because electricity until we had batteries you couldn't store electricity you have to always keep the system in balance oh. um and i mean i remember oh. one of the one of the stories my lecturers always used to tell was the moment you know when there's an ad break in the world cup and everyone ends up and puts their kettle on and you suddenly get a big surge in demand but you've got to do that at every minute of every day um and pump storage is one way yeah. of of doing that it's very cheap it's one of the cheaper ways of doing that historically that's why and you can also when you have too much 
supply almost you know if demand is low but you had inflexible plants like coal plants you can't turn them up and down all the time you can use that electricity to pump the water up to a top dam and then release it when you need it so all of these technologies are there to smooth the peaks and troughs of of supply and demand and keep them in balance um what's no. different about renewables is and that so they they are dispatched by the weather <laughs> rather than by us yeah. so it's just like more complicated right. but so so if ESCOM needs to needs to shut us down in order to just pump, you seem to be suggesting that the, the current solar and wind capacity that we have could be better used to do that anyway. My understanding is that that they have a, a, an agreement with ESCOM for the amount of power that they that they that they sell into ESCOM, and one presumes that's not a twenty four hour cycle, but one also presumes that particularly for wind that the wind blows at night and during the day and that there would be power literally all the time. I mean, depending on where, you know, where you are. Um, and I just wonder whether we, whether we use the power that we have or the capacity that we have to good effect. Um, uh, the, the, if, if, the, if hydro is storage and ESCOM is failing um, and you're suggesting that we should do more um, solar, more wind. The, what's what's stopping more solar and more wind is is just the politics, right? The government is saying no, you can't, or is it ESCOM saying no, you can't? We can't take all of that. Well, one of the there's of course a political element to this, um, which has played out over many <laughs> the last five or six years, of yeah. course, um, which has mm -hmm. kind of slowed everything down. The other big challenge for ESCOM is that they have not been investing or they've not had the capital to invest in the transmission and distribution infrastructure that they need to. Madupi and Kusile and Angula have sucked a lot of that, that capital into them. And so our best renewable resources, which are in the Northern Cape, there's now very little what is called evacuation capacity. The transmission grid, the wires, there's no space left on them. So they've got a big, almost decade-long um, challenge to build that out sufficiently. And in the interim, what we have, which is very valuable, is ESCOM retiring coal plants in Mpumalanga, close to load, yeah. um, with transmission yes. infrastructure. So you using that, I think, does two things. It lets you use that infrastructure. It lets you um, avoid the fact you know, get around the fact that we've starved transmission of capital. Um, and it also provides some kind of just transition support so you can retrain workers and you can kind of build new value chains in, in that space. When Kamati closes in Mpumalanga in October, apparently, um, that means that potentially um, a wind or, or solar or renewables um, power could get onto the grid without overloading it or become being too much the grid could take it so is it a, is it is is the is the just transition as it occurs in the political mind i.e slow movement from coal to gas to renewables is that a false economy i mean is it you know the idea is to save the jobs i understand that and you feel you know nobody wants to put somebody out of a job but surely the quicker we do this the quicker we the quicker we get safe and get back to growth surely by by dragging it out we are taking opening ourselves up to errors and mistakes and cost in the uh, you know over the next decade or two 
Absolutely. So that socioeconomic assessment is very important. And I mean, I find this very interesting in the gas debate because it doesn't often actually come up is that there are very few jobs at a gas plant. Um, you know, there's there's roughly as many per gigawatt installed in wind and solar and, and coal, a little bit more in renewables than in, than in coal, not that many in gas. Um, we'd have to check the exact number. Um, but the the part of, you know, the risk of big gas and big infrastructures that you make power prices very expensive, and that has all these knock-on effects into energy intensive industry and all along the value chain. Of course, the just transition, you know, it's become fashionable to say orderly, it must be orderly. Um, and of course, it must be orderly, you can't yes. just chaos unfolding. Um, but in some ways, by not being honest about the fact that it's coming, you ha what has happened is that people have not prepared. Um, we should have been preparing for a transition away from coal from five or six or seven years ago, in fact, because then you have time to build out alternative sectors. And in Pumalanga, you have time to build an industrial development strategy for the region, for example. You have time to plan what are we going to do in these in these sites. And ESCOM is now doing a lot of this, you know. They're they're thinking about repowering and repurposing and and all of that. But yeah, I think there'd be a lot of advantage in really um kind of going big, you know, really starting to build out a, a huge new sector um, with a, like the accompanying of renewables. manufacturing of renewables with the accompanying manufacturing. Um, and it would limit the cost increases in the power sector, of course, because every time you build something that's more expensive, you, you, you make power more expensive for all the users in the economy. Um, and that's a big, I mean, it's been a huge drag. I see you know, something like 35 billion rand, excluding 2021 and 2022. And t last year was as much load shedding as the pre previous four. So we're looking at, you know, probably 100 billion rands worth of economic loss. Yeah, well, that's something to think about. Jesse Burton, thank you very, very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, and I do know how, how, how pressed you are. And I hope you listeners too enjoyed Jesse Burton as much as I did. I'm going to try and find more people to talk about energy and climate change in these podcasts. Ukraine aside, climate change is a story of our lifetimes and we have to understand it better. Thank you for joining and I'll be back again next week. Be safe. Bye-bye.